I'm not Brienne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Brienne is in the middle of a flare right now, so I'm going to keep this short, but rest assured there are more episodes coming. If you want to hear from her when she was a little bit livelier, Brienne is a guest on this week's episode of the podcast At the Table with Beth Ruffin. They talk about chronic illness, advocacy, and the gift of believing people. This week, Brienne is talking to Caitlin about epilepsy, EDS, and a lot of other great stuff. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. I like to start just by asking people, how was your health as a kid? Um, I actually was, I would say healthy to probably age four. And that's when things kind of got weird. Like I, when I was born, I was already two feet long. They already knew I was going to be really tall. And that trend continued. But it was around four or five that my, and I, for context, I call my birth mom my birth mom. And my mom is actually technically my stepmother. Okay. And so my birth mom noticed I started tiptoeing everywhere. And at first she thought I was like, you know, cutesy five-year-old thing. Like, you know, who knows? Yeah, it's whimsical. She noticed it was going on for like two or three weeks. And she finally stopped me and she was like, Caitlin, why are you tiptoeing everywhere? And I said, because it hurts so bad in my feet, I can't put my feet down. And what was happening is I was growing so fast, it was actually ripping apart the growth plates of my ankles. Wow. So everywhere I was walking, I was walking on a broken foot. Wow. And... That's when we started doing testing, and at least back then, because I'm like 26 years old, so that would have been in like the mid-90s, there wasn't a whole lot of information. They knew that something wasn't quite right, mm-hmm. but beyond that, it was just kind of let her grow up, let's have, keep things pretty normal, and one of the things was we had a couple of doctors kind of stop us and say, oh, well, maybe that she's growing too fast and she's going to stop, or... Maybe she has some form of like Marfans or we're not quite sure. Mm-hmm. And they tried to do some experimental testing, but my birth mom shot it down. Okay. And everything pretty much continued normal till I say probably around 13 or so. So were you um, still having like the same amount of pain, but kind of nothing new happened? The pain, at least in my ankles, eventually stopped and I stopped cracking those growth plates. But I was in PTOT like two to three times a week for years because everything would get super tight. We always knew my joints didn't quite work right. Like my bone age was always too old. Hmm. So there's like little stuff, but it was enough to where it was never debilitating. Mm -hmm. Kind of carried on. Gotcha. Okay. So little stuff, but it was normal for you also, I'm sure, right? You didn't know any different. Like just continuing with my day. We did lots of blood work every six months, but everything turned out to be fine usually. So... We just continued on. Mm-hmm, totally. Okay. So then you said 13. It sounds like things started to change. You're like, yeah. Things started to quite a bit, quite a bit of change at 13. Um, we always knew that my tonsils and adenoids were about four times too big. Hmm. And they eventually had to come out. But again, it was one where I would get pretty chronic sinusitis. But other than that, like I would move on with my day. Right. But I decided that's it. We're going to get them out of there. It's going to be a quick TNA, which is the tonsil and adenoid surgery. Mm-hmm. And not a big deal. But I went for cardiac clearance for surgery. And that's when they noticed a pretty severe arrhythmia. Okay. And from the arrhythmia, it turned into bradycardia to tachycardia to, um, I think it was a, a four-point arrhythmia where I was starting to go into quadruple runs. Like, I was almost passing out. It, my heart rate ranged from 40 to 200. And that's when it became debilitating. Mm-hmm. And do you think in retrospect, because obviously before you think that this is a problem, you're not really paying attention to your heart rate, probably, especially not as like a 12 year old or something. Do you think that you had had symptoms of this for a while or was this like when that started? That's actually when it started. I didn't have a ton of symptoms beforehand besides like the muscle spasms and things like that. Mm -hmm. But But like the lightheadedness or the kind of everything else that comes along with heart rate arrhythmia issues. All new. Okay. Got it. So they found that when they were clearing you for surgery. Sorry for the interruption. And, no, not at all. And, and it started pretty slow. Like the arrhythmia started pretty benign. And the they noticed a little bit of tachycardia, but I was only hitting like 120, which is fast for most people. But for me, found that was pretty normal. Yeah. It, and like very manageable, right? Like, yeah. oh, yes, sure. 
yeah, you know, I would get kind of like a little out of breath and then I'd move on with, move on and be fine. But it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. And cause it went from just a single arrhythmia to double arrhythmia to triple to quadruple. And that was over a span of about a year or so. Mm-hmm. Okay. And even when I went in finally for that TNA, um, for some reason I had a really severe reaction to the anesthesia and I ended up in the ICU for like a week or two. Oh, wow. So like, that's when it just, everything kind of turned at 13. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like with, if you're in the hospital for a week after what is usually like a kind of unremarkable surgery, that by itself is like, something is happening here. Yeah, pretty much. It started the whole cardiac beads and all that kind of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. And from there, it just kept getting weirder where I eventually did an MRI of my brain. What they then thought was just a pituitary hyperplasia, which would mean that my pituitary is too enlarged. Okay. That was abutting my optochiasm, which is a a fun way of saying it's kind of nudging the blood vessels in my eyes. Okay. So that we thought was, it turns out it's not, it's actually a tumor as of right now, but the quality of MRI wasn't as good. Hmm. So we moved on with that. That's one where we did explore doing radiation or removal of the pituitary. But again, it was it's the same story. It was just benign enough to where we decided we're going to just kind of leave it alone, see yeah. what happens. Yeah, manage the symptoms rather than do this invasive thing that will have its own side effects, obviously. Exactly. Yeah, so many and questions then, like that. Pretty much, yeah. And then... Um, first year of high school because the tna was in middle school the um eighth grade for at least the u.s um first year of high school when i was about 14 15 that's when it got really bad um i maybe made it 20 days of school that year um and it was one where we didn't couldn't figure out what was happening i kept blacking out and i was having all these neurological issues and we started going to so many different specialists like Easily, I had two or three doctor appointments every single week, mm-hmm. and just no one knew what was happening. I, I was having um, like a drop of my right arm where all of a sudden I would kind of black out, and they're thinking seizures, but on an EEG, they couldn't find anything, and it just kind of kept going like that, and I, I would get so tired. I'd be sleeping for easily 20 hours after like, I black out, and so I was just completely debilitated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, we come to find out. I was just gonna say, I mean, like 20 days of school is significant, given that, I guess, I don't know how many normal school days there are, but like, at least nine months where there's at least, what, four, at least 20 days a month. So that's like, must be about 140. Yeah, yeah. So that's one seventh of the school year. I know about math. (laughs) Anyway, okay, so that was all happening. And they're running lots of tests, not really finding anything. And that continued on for about three or four years where I really couldn't make it to school. I was debilitated. I started getting a, a like a really vicious migraine cycle that lasted for about a year and a half unbroken. Mm. And then I had a weird split in my skin on my back that went down to the bone. And mm. they don't know what happened there. They thought it was just maybe weakness. I had surgery again. And it wasn't until the junior year of high school, so three or four years later, that they figured out that I just had a rare form of epilepsy, mm-hmm. um, complex partial seizures. And how did and they figure it out? I returned to an old specialist uh, for neurology, and we went over all the symptoms again that I would have what seemed like an attack. I couldn't remember anything. I'd be really dazed for about two hours afterwards, and there would be a lot of neurological signs, like my right arm would always lift partially off my side, mm-hmm. and that would be followed by a severe migraine cycle and the 20 hours sleeping. Mm-hmm. And we knew it was happening like two or three times a week or so, yeah. so that would be almost an entire day gone every time. Right. And from all those symptoms, we were able to figure out that I had complex partial seizures that was embedded between my two frontal lobes. Mm-hmm. And we started medication, and like magic, I felt better again. Yeah, it was. Was it really like quick and dramatic with anti-epileptic? Okay, anti-epileptic. Good. Yep. Good words. So that was a really dramatic change. Really quick change. It would have been once I titrated on. We tried one, didn't work. Tried another one, 
it was like a month and a half titration. And all of a sudden I felt like what I did as a kid, it was yeah. done. Yeah. That would be so dramatic. I would imagine after you said like three or four years of not being able to function or participate and then like, nope. Um, and so, so where, okay, hang on. I'm trying to think of how to formulate this question. It's the end of the week. Um, you had been still sort of going to school, it sounds like. So how was it to kind of get a lot of your quality of life back after being out of this social environment and out of this academic environment for years? Like, It was amazing. Like for me, I personally always loved school. Mm-hmm. And like just the academic side, not just the social side. Mm-hmm. And I had maintained all A's. I would just take, I would literally go to like maybe once a week, grab all my homework I would come in for testing. I'd literally walk in, take a test, walk back out. And they and let you also, do that? That by itself is impressive. So at least here in the U.S., we have a, what's called a 504 plan, mm-hmm. um, which is the medical plan for any kind of student who has an issue. They, tr- The school tried to force me out. Yeah. And especially my birth mom. Pre-diagnosis, right? Especially without a diagnosis, I'd imagine it would be harder to get accommodations, even though obviously something was going on. Yeah, it was really hard. And um, they tried really hard to get me out. But my birth mom, she threatened lawyers. She did the whole thing. She was really great about that. She said, I don't want her to go to any kind of cyber school. She's going to stay in school. She's I kept my grades up so they couldn't push mm-hmm. that issue. Right. And we just made it work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which I mean, it's, it's amazing. There are obviously like not everyone is able to do the work when they're sick. Mm-hmm. There's like other layers to it, but the truancy problem can be a problem all by itself where schools are just like, nope, sorry, doesn't make sense. Good luck. Anyway, so so you got to like stream yourself back in basically because you knew what was yeah, going on. It, it went from where I would, like I said, I would show up for a test and I would leave. I'd maybe be at school once a week or sometimes not even at school to I was able to go back every single day. Mm-hmm. And I still had that 504 plan in place, especially now because of the seizure prevention, but I just kind of carried on. Mm-hmm. Excuse me. Yeah. So, so then how has the medication been? Like, are there, I don't know a lot about epilepsy medication. So tell me about that. I went through two main ones. I went through, um, Keppra and I'm completely blanking on the second one, <laughs> um, but I, I was on Keppra till about 19 and then I started having breakthrough seizures. We switched over to a new one and I actually had a lot of severe side effects. Mm-hmm. Uh, it caused a stutter. It caused a lot of brain fog. Um, I used to have a really good memory, and that was wiped out. On the and first one or on the first med? Both. both, yeah. And I, I had a lot of those kind of like, I pretty much had all the symptoms that would come with it. But sitting down with the neurologist, we decided, is it better to not be able to function at all, to constantly be sleeping, or should I kind of suck it up and take the side effects? Mm-hmm which is what I went with. Right. Right. Which and, is a question I think people outside of the chronic illness community don't always realize that side effects can be that intense. I think we kind of hear them like rattled off on TV very quickly at the end of drug ads. And it doesn't land that the choice that you just said of like, well, one of these things is completely pulling me out of my life. And this other thing is still heavily impacting my life. But there's a choice that I made. Yeah. And I think it's a choice that a lot of people face because we talked to a lot of neurologists and they all basically said, well, you got to suck it up. Mm-hmm. There is no other choice. There is no other medication you can do. You either have the seizures, which can progress and become worse and worse because mine were non-epileptic, or I'm sorry, non-convulsive, mm-hmm. and it can change over to a grand mal, mm-hmm. or you take the side effects. Mm-hmm. Right. And when you... I guess I kind of skipped ahead on the timeline just because I was asking about that. So you said you started having some breakthrough seizures when you were 19. Is that right? So I, I started in, I think, 18 or 19 because it was my freshman year of college. Mm-hmm. So it was like you had a couple totally, well, not totally normal years, but totally symptom-free year or epilepsy symptom. I keep adding a lot of caveats because these things are actually really complicated and I'm not trying to gloss over the experience at all. But from where you had been, you had a couple like kind of normal in air quotes, high school years. And then you applied to college, got into college 
And then it did it feel like it was coming back? Like, did you expect that you could have, or did you know that you could have breakthrough seizures? They warned me because I I hit the max usage of Keppra. That's actually why I switched over. And everything was cool probably for like a few months. But during that freshman year, it was my very first freshman semester that I started getting breakthroughs. Like the one that I remember so big, so like distinctly was I was sitting in math class and then I woke up on my bed. Yeah. It was just gone. And I just, I all of a sudden I realized like, oh no, it's coming back. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that must've been scary. Even if you kind of knew it was possible after so long without it. And it was scary too. Cause I, I walked across a busy campus. I walked across a street and I, no one knew that I had them cause I would, I went across the country mm. and so no one was there with me. Right. Right. Okay. So breakthrough started. And then did you go back to the doctor at that point? You might've said that when you mentioned them in passing. Yeah. I went back to the doctor then and I, I switched over to then to um, Zonagran. And that is what I took until about 22. And then we, they had always told me I should probably test it, go off every two years, see if I still have them. Hmm. I finally did that at 22 and I've never had a seizure since. Whoa. So you went fully off medication at 22. Mm-hmm. That... So last years, no symptoms, no drugs, nothing. That's really something. I feel like, I mean, I've known people with epilepsy and I've known people on epilepsy meds, but it's the kind of thing where you never know the full kind of details of it. So between the first thing, which sounds like is still kind of a mystery, like whatever was going on with your body that was injuring your ankles, and then this experience, which is huge, of course, um, since 22, when you off of when you went off of the medication, how has your health been in general, or how does this impact your perception of your health? If that makes sense, uh, it does make a lot of sense. Um, it's one where I went for surgery at 21, and I got completely cardiac free. I no longer have an arrhythmia. I did um, cardiac rehab. That's gone. Tachycardia and bradycardia. I have a little bit of a bradycardic rhythm. Mm-hmm. It's kind of slow, but that disappeared. And what was the surgery and at 21? Did you say that? 21, I had gastric bypass. Okay. Or sorry, a gastric sleeve because mm-hmm. I was overweight. I was about 160 pounds overweight and lost 160 pounds. And when I went there, we did a full clearance. Everything was fine. Um, and I still kind of had this joint issue going on, though, because um, in my, it probably was my junior year of college, all of a sudden I became really sick. And at first I had got pneumonia, so I just assumed I still had muscle aches from pneumonia. Like, that's, you know, pretty big yeah. illness to go through. Definitely. But it didn't stop. It was two or three weeks later, and I still, my joints were on fire. Mm-hmm. And from where I'm from, I'm from the Northeast, there is a lot of Lyme disease. Right. So first testing, Lyme disease, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis, the whole gamut of rheumatology. Mm-hmm. And there was nothing. Mm-hmm. The only thing I got kind of temporarily diagnosed with was hypermob- um, benign hypermobile disorder. Okay. Which is just the fun way of saying your joints move the way they shouldn't move. Right. You are hypermobile, and we don't think that there's any like underlying connective tissue problem, probably. That they said they didn't know. The rheumatologist I saw said, I'm really sorry. I have no experience even with hypermobile. Try Googling it and find a doctor. Wow. Which yeah. you don't expect doctors to say, try Googling it. <laughs> that, uh, that became the series of, I'm sorry, I don't know what to do. You should probably do more research. Again, astounding. Um <laughs> And, and like on a completely irrelevant note, I was just having a conversation today with somebody who has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, and she was telling me about how the geneticist who diagnosed her was very frustrated that so many doctors like won't touch it, basically. Because for hypermobile type, you don't need a geneticist. And there's like no reason that more doctors aren't more comfortable with it. I mean, if, like there's reasons, but there's no educational reason. Um, That's actually what I finally got diagnosed with. Okay. I have ATDS. Okay. Okay. So let's get there. So, so you had seen somebody because you had all of these, all of this joint pain during your senior year of college, you said. It was like, I think it was either my junior or senior. Okay. Yeah. Late college. And so this is, is before the surgery? This is after surgery. So I had, or no, I'm sorry. It might've been right before surgery. Okay. And we're, so you're like looking for an explanation 
the best that they have to tell you is that you are incidentally hypermobile, but that's not really an explanation. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then did that, ex- I guess, just tell me what happened between that and then choosing to have surgery since bodies are hard to navigate sometimes, basically. I eventually had surgery in December of 2014. I was still suffering these like hypermobile attacks. I had no idea where to go from there. So I, I guess I just suffered with it. Like mm-hmm. it doesn't feel great. Uh, even when I lost weight, I was still in a lot of pain. But and as an interjection, because this is something that people talk about a lot, were your doctors suggesting or did they seem to believe that losing weight would make that go away? Yep. <laughs> You're nodding very vigorously in addition to agreeing. Okay. Yeah. Just checking because... Oh, I had a lot of like ableist or like kind of ableist body things where even if I would go to cardiologist when I was having all that stuff, they'd be like, well, just lose weight. Mm-hmm. And like my heart's 220, going 220. I don't think losing weight's going to fix that. Right. It's It's not like, it's clearly not the driver of this issue. Maybe there's a relationship, maybe, but like it's not going to fix this. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And so, but so you did, you chose to have the surgery and you had the surgery and it had its intended outcome of the weight loss, but it did not have the peripheral benefit that doctors hoped for that it would cure everything else. Um, Yes. Um, As a different interesting aside, I've just done too many interviews lately. I also recently interviewed someone who was about to get um, I think a gastric bypass. And she was talking about all of the research that she'd done actually in terms of how, what it was known to impact, like because uh, like fat cells hold a lot of hormones and they da 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 da. And it was really interesting to hear this other perspective of like so many doctors just blame everything on weight, which is ludicrous and like not scientifically sound in any way. But it was interesting to hear like where the pockets are. She was like, I don't think that losing weight will cure me. It will definitely not cure me. But there's evidence that it might have this relationship to flares. And I I know that's not what we're talking about, but it just made me think of it. So I'm very rambly today. Thank you for listening and nodding along. No, no, I, I completely understand. Because I've, I've literally, when I was younger, like in high school still, I had gone to specialists and they're like, oh, well, you're just fat. You should leave. Yeah. And you don't need medical there. help. I was there for completely different reasons. I'm like, I can mean, I agree. Medically, I am overweight, but I'm not sure what impact this has on our discussion. Yeah. Yeah. God. I mean, it's such a huge problem. And did you also, did you notice a difference in the medical care that you got afterwards? Just how people were responding to you? Yeah. I noticed a huge difference of even because I gained some weight back, but there'd be times where I go into the office versus before I lost a lot of weight and before and after I lost a lot of weight before they would be like well we need to double check your a1c I have no history of a1c issues mm-hmm. we need to check your blood pressure I have low blood pressure mm-hmm. like it was always an assumption that I must have a lot of chronic um things that are attached to being overweight yeah and it was never actually I would have to get through 30 minute discussion before I could actually talk about what I needed to talk about yeah and now especially after I lost weight especially not my skinniest I would never have that come up. There mm-hmm. would be no, oh, well, we need to check your blood sugar levels. Like, no one cared. Right. Right. And, of course, like, everybody should be monitoring those in the broadest sense. But that kind of, like, bias is, like you're saying, it's preventing good care. It's absurd. Um, okay. So, back to the timeline. So, you after the surgery, you're still experiencing joint pain. And this must now be around the same time that you went off of the epilepsy medication is that kind of right a year later okay and did anything happen in the middle um so yeah actually one thing (laughs) did happen so after surgery everything was going great um i got married and which i'm now divorced which is fine and after that we were living together everything was going great and one day, I something really bad happened. So I had already lost all the weight. I was still on epilepsy medication. Um, we were we just adopted a new dog, and I was playing with her. I went to stand up, and I felt the really really strange pop, and I hit the ground, mm. and I couldn't get up. Mm-hmm. And at first, we didn't know what was happening. Like uh, my husband, then he like picked me up, put me in bed. I like stayed in bed all day because it was around nighttime ish. 
And the next day I woke up, I couldn't get up to go to the bathroom. Like I literally was in searing pain. It was raining down my leg. And I just had a friend who had sciatic issues. And I said, I need to go to ER right now. I think something happened. Mm -hmm. And at first he was like, no, no, don't worry about it. We'll just rest a little bit more. Like, no, I I need to go right now. Yeah. And I went there three times in the next few days. Okay. And were you just going and they were like, well, everything looks fine. Like, go wait it out, basically? No. The the first time they were like, okay, you herniated L2 and L3. And obviously there's a sciatic impingement. Right. Which that was fine. And then in between, I had a polynidal cyst burst. Or oh. sorry, not polynidal, a um, ovarian cyst burst. So you were just having a lot of bad luck all at <laughs> once, basically. Yeah, for like three days. Yeah, holy cow. That's the opposite of what usually happens. <laughs> and then I went to my primary doctor because I'm like, okay, I have a herniated disc. I need to at least go to therapy, be on some kind of management. Mm-hmm. And they blew me off. They said, I might give you ibuprofen, but otherwise get out of here. Okay. And I immediately called insurance, said I need a new doctor, got transferred back to an old one. And before I could see her, I had to go to the ER again because it was, I, I couldn't move. Mm-hmm. And that's when they found out L1 broke Who? in a compression fracture, which is um, like a, almost like a door wedge. Okay. So L1 was now broken. L2 and L3 were herniated with nerve impingement. And I was in like searing pain. Mm-hmm. And it was around then, I was still in college. I actually had to drop out my last semester. Mm-hmm. And I had literally one class to graduate. Yeah, and, and it was not going to happen. I couldn't sit. Yeah. So yeah. I went back to the old family doctor. We started pain management. I did back injections. We did a really intense physical therapy for a few months. And then I had to move. So I broke my current um, care providers. And were you experiencing any relief from that com- that treatment combination? Yes. So I did experience some relief with the injections. I was actually able to walk again at least. And then they also did a pretty aggressive narcotic therapy that I wasn't a huge fan of. Mm-hmm. And I have heard from other, because I actually have two friends with EDS. I don't know how we found each other, but we did. And they also have noticed that narcotics, they don't get a lot of relief from. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it just doesn't have... The desired effect of pain management. Yeah. Okay. But the injections were helping. So you move and you need to find new care providers and like a team basically at this point because you're managing a lot of conditions kind of or a lot of symptoms, right? Yeah. And uh, at my old family doctor, they again send me to rheumatology. This is right before we move. I go to my second rheumatologist now and she says, I think you have early onset osteoporosis on top of the benign hypermobile, which I I find out later I don't. And her suggestion literally was, make sure you get all your dental work done right now, all your teeth will fall out, and make sure you have a baby right now, you'll never be able to have one again. Cool, thanks. That's helpful. Wow. Uh, I now have a horrifying fear of the dentist. Mm -hmm. Mm Because for about two years, I couldn't get a DEXA bone scan, so I was severely terrified of going. And I'm still trying to go to therapy to work through that one. Yeah, fair. It's something that I find so weird, I guess, about stories about doctors is that, like, on the one hand, people have these experiences where doctors don't really tell them what their diagnoses mean. And so they don't, they're, like, not prepared and they're not taking care of themselves the best that they could because their doctor has like literally withheld information and then on the other side there are these stories where doctors are like here's the worst case scenario and i'm telling it to you like it's a fact i'm like how are these both happening at once it's it's bizarre and i had an experience like that before i about 14 or 15 when we're doing the cardiac follow-up i did an echocardiogram and they sat us down both me and my birth mom Um, and they literally said, you have a two millimeter hole in your heart. We're going to start planning open heart surgery and come in for your second testing. Come back. It was a shadow. You're like, thank you for your caution. But to tell a 14 year old, and I literally thought I was going to have open heart surgery for two weeks. I'm like, that was incredibly reckless. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. So, (laughs) so then ultimately, so this person tells you all your teeth are going to fall apart basically yep different and issue but not better different issue but i just like tabled it like oh well 
I did go and get, I had to get like teeth pulled. I got those pulled for like, um, just the regular, like, oh my gosh. I'm like wisdom, your, teeth? wisdom teeth? Yeah. Yep. And like got all that over with immediately. Cause I'm like, oh my God, I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. And on a weird side note, um, when they pulled my wisdom teeth, all the roots were twisted, Ooh. which is apparently a very common sign of EDS is the literal roots. It looks like a tree. Huh. And it was one where I didn't know about EDS at all yet. So I just went, hmm, that's a really weird looking tooth. Let's move on. Yeah, sure, sure. And probably that's what the whoever, maxillofacial mm-hmm. surgeon, whoever pulls wisdom teeth. I guess sometimes dentists, sometimes surgeons. Yeah. Okay. And so I tabled it. We moved. Uh, I started getting a new like care team. Um, and then weirdly enough, someone who had married into my ex's family had EDS. And I started talking more and more with his mom. And she's like, I, I've been listening to everything you're talking about. And it's everything that she complains about. Maybe you should kind of follow up on that. Mm-hmm. And it was a weird enough experience where I started seeing people. I saw, um, weirdly enough, the primary care at the moment was actually really well versed in EDS. She had multiple patients. And then I started seeing orthopedic. And they're both like, yeah, I, you pass, I passed the standardized EDS test. Mm-hmm. Uh, like for hyper, is, the Baton score? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So for hypermobile. Heads? Mm-hmm. Do people say it heads? I haven't heard it that way, but okay. just wondering. I feel like I've started to read it that way in my own head, and then I was like, I don't know if this is the thing that's happening, or if I'm going to start saying this on the podcast and no one will know what I'm talking about. Anyway, okay. So the orthopedist does the Baton test or gets your Baton score. Yep, and I keep passing it. I pass the history wise. Um, I do have a little bit of strange scarification that happens on me, um, which is like the, it just, like for my back surgery, I have the really thick white scar. And then also I, I can't remember the actual scientific name right now, but it's called spider fingers. Okay. And it's when your fingers are too long. It's also seen in Marfans. Right. And occasionally people of the general populace have it, but primarily EDS or Marfans. Mm Mm-hmm. And so that is what cleared me for I now have EDS. We try to do genetic testing, but like you said, it's not really needed for hypermobile and we just didn't have a geneticist near us. Right. Right. It's it's like, I mean, I understand that it's because there are genetically identified types, but it's strange that most doctors are totally uncomfortable diagnosing when it can be hard to get in to see a geneticist and yeah. there's no geneticist special workup that would diagnose hypermobile EDS. I'll just, I'll just say the name. Um, yeah, it was one where they're like, oh, well, we can then rule off cardiac. I'm like, I can always guarantee I don't have cardiac EDS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, and, and those ones are more, I feel like the histories on those can be more kind of obvious is my impression. Yeah. Yeah. So, and how old were you at that point when you got that diagnosis? I, more so I, I broke my spine at 22. And then we moved. I was still 22. So then right at probably as I turned 23 is when I officially got my very first diagnosis of EDS. So a lot was happening all at once with your health. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it was one where they tried to send me to um, osteoporosis uh, arthritis clinic. They I literally got a call from the receptionist saying I canceled your appointment. I'm like, why? She's like, because of your age. Why are you even here? Yeah. And. I'll, I couldn't get back in with them. They were booked out for six months. I'd waited six months, booked out for six months. God. Oh, well. That's like par for the course and also extremely frustrating because that's not relevant. Why? <laughs> yeah. It would be one thing to be like, oh, you probably don't have osteoporosis because of this new diagnosis that we saw in your chart that would explain whatever diagnosed that. But it's totally different to be like, I see that your doctor thinks you have osteoporosis, but I'm not going to help you because you're in your 20s. Yep. (sighs) And it was one where, so I just kept, we, my orthopedic basically said, I'm not really sure what I can do for you. I can try doing a, um, where they go in and do the, ablation of your nerves in your back because I was still really debilitated by it mm-hmm. and it's something I'm still I struggle with mm-hmm. and I again had to move so I wasn't able to follow up with all the prep work I needed for my insurance to get the surgery done right which is a very frustrating part of the insurance system in this country yep the bureaucracy of it um yeah okay so after diagnosis Okay. I just want to make sure that like, I know which threads are still falling. So at this point, 
the I don't want to say the epilepsy is over because epilepsy is separately complicated, but you weren't having seizures anymore and you weren't taking the medication. So you weren't dealing with the side effects from that. Correct. Correct. Okay. And then your heart had also kind of stabilized intriguingly. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Okay. So the primary stuff going on now is everything that's going on with your back and then the fa- the kind of nerve fallout from that as and well as, when, yeah. And okay. also right before I moved from Texas, I did a follow-up MRI because of the, what we at that time thought was a pituitary right. hyperplasia and they cleared me saying it's gone. So at this point, everything has fallen away in my mind. I just have EDS, which was weirdly enough a relief. Yeah. Well, after everything else, like not to say that EDS is is easy, but certainly like it varies a lot how it impacts quality of life. And like lots of people with EDS have a pretty good quality of life. And compared to all these other things, it probably was like, yeah, right. Like I'm flexible and some stuff hurts. Fair enough. Yep. Um, I mean, that's exactly how I felt. I'm like, okay, I mean, it could be worse. I could have EDS, epilepsy, and my cardiology problems and neurology problems. So mm-hmm. I'll take EDS. Right. Right. And I guess they had said they didn't really know how to help you. Because I, I realized that there aren't really like standardized treatments for EDS, but was there anything going on, anything else going on in symptom management for you at that time? Or did that get shaken um, up by the move? A little bit. So it was one where I was really just fighting for that surgery because the primary pain at that point was the low back where they did follow x-rays. The actual fracture itself had healed. The hernias had healed, but I was still in just amazing pain every day. Mm -hmm. Like some days I could get up and I could move. Other days I was stuck in bed Mm -hmm. and nothing was going to change it. And this, I just realized that we didn't talk about this. So you mentioned how, because of everything, you weren't able to finish at school. And were you able to work at all in this time or kind of what were you up to? Because, you know, time. So I I went to school to um, initially become a doctor, but because of my epilepsy medication side effects, I couldn't memorize anything. Mm -hmm. That doesn't really work for the medical field. Right. Yeah. Or like the testing to get into the medical field. Yep. Um, So I gave up on that because I realized I just can't do it at this time. And I started going for um, more like arts. So English, which I'd already been really good at. So I'm like, whatever, I'm good at it. I don't like it, but I'll continue on. Mm -hmm. And once we moved, I, on my school, I wasn't able to go back to. So I started working and weirdly enough, I started work in the medical field and administrative Mm -hmm. and which I'm still in. I'm actually pursuing a career in. Okay, so you were able to find ways to make that work around everything else that was going on. And -hmm. do you need um, many accommodations to like, do you need to sit? Are you able to sit? How does that all work just logistically? I'm so curious when people find ways to work, to make work work. Um, So I'm sticking to the administrative. I thought about pursuing clinical, but I I don't think my day-to-day would ever be able to handle it. Mm -hmm. And so I usually work at a desk. Like right now, um, my job is great. I work at a hospital. I do sit, I have a sit stand desk. I can move around. I actually, I'm staring. I just got my disabled parking pass. Ooh. And I'm staring at it right now. So I'm very excited. Mm-hmm. So I'll be able to go in. I use a cane uh, some days and that really helps. Mm-hmm. And my work is always really nice. They realize that sometimes I have to move around. Sometimes I'm like all over the place and they see me twisting around. Just like, let me do my thing and I'll figure it out. Mm-hmm. So it's like as long as you're able to physically get as comfortable as possible, you have figured out how to kind of get your focus and get some work done. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Okay. So, so where where did we leave off? Um, I think it was more or less after the EDS diagnosis. So after that, you had moved. And tell me what happened moved, next. <laughs> I probably moved like four or five months after the EDS diagnosis. Our only other plan at that point was I um, I was doing a short-term narcotic plan where if I had an extreme flare-up, I'd take um, hydrocodone. Otherwise, I also used THC lotion. Where I was at, you were able to get um, THC. Mm-hmm. And so I found that worked really well. I did not like taking any kind of oral THC. That was not a, not a fan, but the lotion was great. Mm-hmm. And then moved. And again, the story of getting a whole new care provider team. And so, but this time, at least able going forward, I could sit down and say, by the way, I have HEDS. This is what I have. 
and kind of try and go from there. Yeah. Which I got very mixed results. Yeah. Sure. And also my new primary immediately sent me, because of my history for a brain MRI, just for checkup. Mm-hmm. That's when I immediately get a call back from her afterwards that says, I'm booking you for a neurosurgery. Okay. And I was like, what do you mean? Yeah. And she said, it's come back and it's now bigger. Mm-hmm. And so we're still trying to get the records in Texas to actually compare to see if it ever did originally leave. Right. But with the new better imaging, we found out that it is an actual pituitary tumor. Mm-hmm. And it now completely encases all of my optic nerves and blood vessels. And I do have some damage through my left eye now. Mm-hmm. So of your vision itself, does it impact your vision? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's one where my actual glasses aren't bad. They're maybe negative 125, 175. Mm-hmm. But when I take them off, the entire world is fuzzy. Hmm. So they're like whatever it is. More than what someone at my degree of glasses would normally experience. Everything mm-hmm. is really fuzzy. My eyes are very weak. I can't see without my glasses for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're important. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And weirdly, I guess when this comes out, that this it will be kind of in the past, but the episode that just that I put out today was somebody who had had a pituitary tumor, also lupus. So it was more about lupus, but it's like fresh on my mind right now. And the, the optic effects that it can have, because she talked about that specifically, because hers was missed for a long time. She was like, if I didn't kind of keep asking questions, I could have lost my vision and nobody was fighting for me. And that's really frustrating. As it I, is. Yeah. I, I was told since 13, if you ever have the splotches of vision disappear, go to the ER immediately. You're mm-hmm. going to lose your vision. Mm-hmm. Like, and it was one where because I had been told, oh, don't worry, the pituitary tumor is gone. I, from like ages of like 23 to 25, started having a severe drop in vision mm-hmm. where I went from like a negative 75 to negative 175. Right. Like in a span of six months. But all of us were like, mm, that's weird. Yeah. And moved on. Right. The thing that could have caused this, we've all been led to believe, is gone. So we're not, have no reason to ask questions about that. Because mm-hmm. one thinks that imaging is precise, or one hopes that imaging is yep. precise. Yeah. Um, and so how long ago was that? Um, that would have been a year and a half ago that they found it came back. Mm-hmm. And so did you yeah. go to see a neurosurgeon? Mm-hmm. I followed up a really good neurosurgeon here. He's done a lot of pituitary tumors. Um, I switched insurances, so I can't go back and see him anymore. Uh. Um, but I at least now have a new visual spatial field test. I have the new nerve testing that shows the damage. And I know, at least for me personally going forward, I want it removed. Mm-hmm. Since I'm only in my mid-20s, I don't. I already have nerve damage. I don't want to take the risk. Right. And So that's what I'll be pursuing with my new neurosurgeon. Yeah. And I... I guess since it's still in the future, you can't really know kind of how that goes or what that involves. Have you found a new sur- a, a new neurosurgeon? I have. I see them in January. Um, I'm weirdly excited to go to neurosurgery. Yeah. Um, for my last surgeon, they told me it's actually a very easy surgery. They go up through your nose, break back through your brain, and just kind of carefully piece it out. Mm-hmm. And it it is brain surgery, so it's all the usual risks. Mm-hmm. But it's the, I guess, the least invasive of the brain surgeries. Mm-hmm. And they feel like pretty not worried about doing it, which is, I'm sure, yep. comforting. Like, great. It's very comforting. What a job to have being a neurosurgeon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So that's kind of a like present into future thing. So I will go back to my question before of like having had all of these different experiences, like how, how do you feel like your health impacts your life? now or do you feel like more well than you used to be gosh i'm so much less lucid than i think i am sometimes but i'm just wondering because the story has been so up and down but it's not like oh i used to be sick and i got better it's like this thing used to happen and it doesn't anymore but things have changed but i can function i'm gonna just stop talking and let you interpret that question however you want (laughs) so i think it's a complaint that a lot of people with um, eds have Mm-hmm. is that it depends on the day. And yeah. that's one of the most frustrating things is that some days I, I appear completely able-bodied. I'm running around. I go on a 10-mile hike. I do my thing. And then other days I can't move. I have a cane, can't get out of bed. It, it varies greatly. And mm-hmm. it also varies where I live is really cold. So the cold really hurts. And right now it's winter. Right. So this is my worst season at the moment. Yeah. 
And have you done any like experiments or have you found anything that helps with symptom management that's not just like, I don't know why I said it like that because I don't mean it like that, but beyond what a doctor would recommend, you know, like, I guess you mentioned the THC lotion, but people try all kinds of stuff like heating pads on the relatively normal side and like diets or supplements or I did see a Instagram post about a turpentine cleanse yesterday. So people, yeah, that was my reaction too. But people try all kinds of things. Um, so I tried to get back into pain management at my old insurance and was given the lovely, and they're the only pain management even available, and was given the lovely response, we will see absolutely no one with the EDS diagnosis. Ooh. They would not tell me why. They just said, I will not see that diagnosis. And not just the head doctor, every single doctor at that practice. Whoa. So I was stuck with that insurance for a while, for about a year or so, and I said, oh, well, I'm going to figure out how to do it myself. So exactly what you were asking. And I know heat works amazing, really hot shower, jacuzzi, and using a heating pad. Mm -hmm. I know doing like swim therapy really helps because hmm. it does keep your joints stabilized. Right. Uh, I found Arnica cream is really nice. Like mm -hmm. I really love that one. Um, another cream called Penetrex. Hmm. And I also found, it's like the reverse of Biofreeze. It's a heat cream, okay. which I can't remember the name of, but it's really, really great. Hmm. So I found all that, because where I'm at right now, THC is not legal. Right. So I don't play with it then. Yeah. And so I found all those creams are really great. Um, I found bracing really helps. Mm -hmm. I have braces for my ankles. I have uh, braces for my hands and for my left shoulder, which is my worst shoulder. Yeah. Yeah, and bracing is a common thing that people, yeah, with EDS like to use. If you can get, uh, I've, I've tried kineso taping. Uh, both me and one of my local friends who has EDS, uh, because of our skin type, because mm -hmm. it does often lead to fragile skin, it it's not really a great way to do it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess I never thought about that before. Even though I know, like, I've seen a lot of people with EDS who are talking about like band aids and the the tape that they use after a blood draw when they put a cotton ball on you or whatever. And for some reason, I had never considered that that would be similar to the tape, which I've definitely seen people use too. So, of course, that would be an obstacle. Yep. So I, I tried kinesia taping for the left shoulder once, especially because when I'm able to, I really like to do like boxing and hiking things like that, and like being able to stabilize my shoulder would be great. Mm -hmm. but it ripped off and also took some skin with it and I'm good. Yeah. Not better. Nope. Totally. Yeah. And so we're pretty much caught up to the present, right? I mean, we got into the future a little, so hopefully. Um, yeah. And you mentioned that you incidentally have met a few people with EDS now. Yeah, I have. I, have. I was at the first one was super funny because I was at work. And we were somehow, I forget how we were talking about flexibility of our hands. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I did something like, haha, you think you could do that? But I like bent my like wrist all the way back. Yeah. And they were like, oh, and well, that seems strange. I'm like, yeah, but I have a lot of hand pain. And one of the girls I work with like whips around. I was like, what did you just say? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm like, I'm, I'm hyper flexible. I can kind of move everything. She's like, what is your diagnosis? And I'm like, oh, I have HEDS. And she's like, there's no way I do too. <laughs> And it was then someone I had been working with for like six months. We all of a sudden realized we both have the same exact disease. Mm -hmm. And from like, there. Never came up. Yep. It, it was great. We got to talk about a lot of things. Um, she, I mean, I wouldn't say we're, she's worse than I am or that I'm worse than her. She has a little bit of experience. She has a lot of problems walking now. So she tends to sometimes use a, um, a walker. And really enough, we're also the both exact same age. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's so two of you with mobility where... aids. Yep. And it was one where we got to like, you know, oh, I found this really cool brace. I, I actually found a physical therapist who knew about us and recommended her to him. Mm -hmm. So she was able to go see this physical therapist who was also really good with EDS. Like we just kind of share tips with each other. Yeah. Yeah. Because I was thinking about one thing I think that a lot of people talk about is how like finding community online can make such a big difference when you have nobody to talk about it with. And like, what a world when you also meet someone in, in your office who you're able to like share resources with, because as we've been talking about a lot, not every professional is prepared to deal with this kind of thing. Yeah. And the other person, um, one of my best friends from college, 
um, I was talking with her one day and then she's like, oh yeah, and by the way, my, my roommate has to go to surgery. She's like, she has EDS. I'm like, excuse me? And she's like, yeah, she has EDS. I'm like, that's my new diagnosis. Yeah. And I actually just got to meet that person for the very first time. And it, it, again, it's that weird experience of like, we have so much in common just right off the bat. Mm-hmm. And it shapes both, so um, many of your experiences, right? It's like, yeah. yeah, yeah, that's, that's pretty cool. Have you, um, do you connect with people very much online? I'm always interested in people's experiences with like online communities too. I actually, I do. Um, there's some really cool Facebook, um, that are even kind of local to us. Mm-hmm. And then actually I found you through EDS on Reddit. I think oh. it's Ehlers Danlos. Yeah. Someone had shared your open letter and I had read through it and saw like you asking if anyone wanted to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. And I found that's really nice. Like I, I had a, I think three weeks ago I had a really depressive state where like everything just felt like it was going wrong and just being able to post online and be like, do you guys experience this? Cause this really, really sucks. Yeah. And having everyone be like, oh yeah, I, I also go through this was just, I don't know, it made it better. Yeah. Yeah. I think like sometimes this is, I'm talking about myself, but I think people talk about this a lot too. It's like there's pain, which this is also true for physical pain, like something hurts or something hurts emotionally. But then there's also this added really difficult level of thinking that no one else experiences it or like thinking like there's an agony involved. I feel like, Mm -hmm. and it can make such a difference and for physical pain, but also for emotional pain, like being down or being not clinically depressed, but like situationally depressed, that just realizing that you're not the only person who's experiencing this by itself can make such a difference. Like, and it's hard. I feel like it's really hard in, in an environment where we have no media representation of chronic illness really at all. Now, I don't know if you pay attention to Jamila Jamil, like for Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, the celebrities that have Ehlers-Danlos include Jamila Jamil, who you don't look like you know who she is. She's on the TV show, The Good Place. Um, She's British. And she also has a game show. I don't know. She has some other weird show now, but she's on The Good Place. She Mm -hmm. is very um, active on social media, on Instagram and Twitter. I think sometimes she does a lot of great activism, sometimes... People get Not frustrated so with her. Yeah. But like she has Ehlers-Danlos syndrome and she talks about it. And then like Lena Dunham. And those are the only two people with EDS that I could think of. And I feel and like. Tia. Oh, right. That was a huge thing, right? Yeah. Yes. That was a huge thing recently when that. And I feel like something happened where there was a bad headline about it so that it looked like Ehlers. She had put a comma. And so I, I forget the exact situation, but she had forgotten punctuation somewhere. And so they read it all together. Yeah. And, it and nobody faxed. Ableist. Yeah. And I think it was like it was published in some publication and they, nobody on their team fact checked it. So it was just like Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, a neurological disease. That, that was it. Yeah. Yes. Okay. You're right. So like three, but who aren't I mean they're not out there like representing what Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is they're just doing whatever they do and incidentally they have EDS the way that it's presented kind of um so I think I just think it's really cool the way that the internet has like made this stuff more available to people you know these experiences I'm super rambly today I just want to go ahead and comment again um no I appreciate it (laughs) so yeah um, is there anything about chronic illness that we haven't talked about that's been on your mind or from your experience or kind of whatever? So for me, part of the reason I like working in the medical field, I'm not a clinical side, but I'm also, I, I see patients. Mm-hmm. So the really nice thing is I get a lot of people who have chronic illness who call in or I see them or however happen to meet them. And I get to kind of talk to them. And I've had experiences with people who are young, who are old. Um, and it's that moment of like you were saying, where I finally get to talk to someone and I feel less stuck in my head, mm-hmm. where it's always a really nice experience. I've sat down with people and be like, oh, you know, you can do this, this or this, or there's this support group. And I don't know, try, I really encourage anyone who has chronic illness to try and seek those out. It really makes a world of difference to be able to talk and be like, I've been made to feel so inadequate and so like these things aren't really happening to me that I finally get to speak to someone else and I, I just I feel better now mm-hmm. yeah and I think a lot of the time it's less it can also be about the practical tips but like what works for one person might not work for another person so that's not even the primary 
benefit, I think, of a lot of these groups. It's it's exactly what you just said. Like, oh, I'm not alone in this. And that's powerful. Because sometimes it's sharing and saying like, hey, uh, my ankle really hurts. What's a good ankle brace? Mm-hmm. And then other times it's just hearing someone say back like, my ankles really hurt too. And I'm really sorry you go through that, but I don't know how to help. But mm-hmm. at least we have it together. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's also like a part of the experience of being sick is learning is like you kind of start to realize how inadequate a lot of what a lot of the platitudes that you hear are and you're able to be like not that I never use platitudes but like it changes the way that you respond to other people's experiences because you get so much like junk thrown at you you're like that wasn't helpful like don't tell me to cheer up because my ankle hurts or whatever it is like I'll stop telling people that and we can just have a different conversation about pain and that's great too What's the difference between sympathy and empathy? Mm-hmm. So with a lot of people, you feel like they sympathize and they feel sorry that you go through it. Mm-hmm. It's different to meet someone and they empathize with you and they know your exact experience. Yeah. I had that moment. Um, I had a friend who had to go through knee surgery and she's been with me since I was five years old. So she's seen the whole ups and downs. Yeah. And we were walking through a festival and she's like, oh my God, you don't even understand how bad my knee hurts right now. So I remember turning and being like, uh, yeah, actually, I really understand. Yeah. And she's like, oh, my gosh, I've never thought about that. Yeah. This is just your every day. Yeah. You're like, I don't mean it to, like, undermine your pain. I just mean, like, actually, don't worry. I know how much it sucks. Yeah. 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 That's it. That's the whole thing. Find people who understand it's always nice when you can find someone who empathizes because it's, I don't know, it's very cathartic to someone instead of saying like, oh my gosh, my hip really hurts. It's dislocated twice today. Instead of saying someone saying, oh, I'm so sorry. Can I do anything? It's, oh, I'm really sorry. That's happened to me before. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know. Sometimes that's enough. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think like there's this other thing where with chronic illness, at some point you start to be like, this isn't probably ever going to go away entirely. And so yeah. I don't like it, it's my work to come to terms with that or make that work or make peace with that. But like, I don't need other people to tell me to lie to me and tell me that it'll get better. And so, yeah, having different conversations where we're just like, yep, sometimes it sucks. And nobody's uncomfortable with that reality is also really validating. And I that was one of the big issues I had with my ex-husband and his family uh, one uh, one of his family members used incredibly ableist language and incredibly offensive terms, which that was not fun. That definitely hurt. Mm-hmm. But it was one where he couldn't quite come to terms with what was happening, where even if it was something as simple as saying, like, I really can't have you help me up because my spine's broken and I need to, even though you're going to hear me in pain, I have to do it, was really hard for him to come to terms with because mm-hmm. he wanted to help pick me up. Yeah. And it was just that disconnect of he was someone who physically had never been disabled mm-hmm. and it was a roller coaster. Same mm-hmm. with any of my family. Yeah. Yeah. And like, there's so much work that everyone has to do for that stuff to start to make sense, which I think is like mm-hmm. kind of what you're describing of like one, this other person has to be ready to do a ton of work to just even get comfortable, to get comfortable with what it looks like for their partner or their loved one to have chronic illness. And there's a ton of work there. And then also this person with chronic illness who might have very little bandwidth for like, gosh, this is going to come out so much later. But there's been a lot of discussion on Twitter this week about what emotional labor is and is not. Um, Mm -hmm. But like it is emotional labor to support someone as they become comfortable with your illness and to really try and like dig into the experience to help to help them feel empathy because you don't have to have had an experience to be empathetic but you do have to like you know like carve out the difference between sympathy and empathy and giving someone enough information so that they can do that is work like it's a lot of work yeah and it's one where i think we got closer towards the end Especially because as he, I have never really suffered from mental disability, but he did. Mm -hmm. So it was also kind of a shared emotional work Mm -hmm. where it was me learning to empathize with what a mental illness meant. Mm -hmm. uh, Especially because he had a pretty severe one versus him trying to empathize with my own disability. Yeah. 
So it was definitely an interesting exchange, and it made me definitely open my eyes up to an experience I've never really had to have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Which bandwidth, like in any of these situations, a lot of bandwidth is required in order to like get and yeah. get out of your own experience and then inside the other person's experience. Yeah. Yeah, I like I've I feel like I've had a lot of conversations lately. Again, this will come out later, but right now it's just before the holidays. And so I've been having a lot of conversations with people about this thing of like, okay, I'm about to go spend time with friends or family who I don't see very often who maybe have a vague understanding of my health, but like not really, right? Like they don't really know what it's like day to day. And just all of the work that goes into navigating those conversations, even if what you're, even if your tactic is deflection, which I've learned that a lot of people do, and I'm going to try this year, but like just being like, oh, you know, same, same, how are you? And not getting into it. But like, ugh, I don't know. It takes a lot of bandwidth. Whew. It does. And it's one where it's actually a conversation I recently had with my mother where, um, she had said something that had really hurt my feelings where she said, oh, well, you're probably not, you're really not disabled because you don't f- uh, face chronic dis- uh, chronic pain. And it was one where I, we actually sat down and had a really nice conversation where I'm like, that really hurt my feelings because I am disabled. I actually do experience chronic pain every single day. Mm-hmm. Like I always rate it from like my chronic pain usually is a five or six, mm-hmm. but I never show it because mm-hmm. at least from my last experience, especially with like my husband and his family, I had learned to just mask it. Mm-hmm. It wasn't worth it. I didn't want to deal with the fight because for them it would be seen as I feel now guilty. For me, it was like I'm just living my life. Yep. And so it was one more, at least for me, my mom, we sat down and she's like, I'd really love to know what's going on. Like, tell me if you're in too much pain. Tell me if we need to stop the car and get out if you're hurting. Tell me if you need to be put the heat, the seat, um, heaters on. Like, mm-hmm. don't just keep it to yourself because for me, it seems like everything's going fine. Right. And, oh. Yes, because that's a huge problem, too. I think like simultaneously, we learn that it's easier if we don't let people see whatever is happening symptomatically, because, you know, if you have to manage someone else's emotional reaction to your symptoms like twice, that's enough times (laughs) to realize that it's not something you want to do every day. And then simultaneously, you learn very quickly that when someone can't tell that you're symptomatic, they assume that you're not. And like... They're, both of these things are happening at once. Like, do I want to do the work of, like, supporting this person as they get upset when they realize that I'm actually in pain? Like, no, that's, I don't want to do that work when I'm in pain. But also, do I want certain people to be able to actually support me because they actually understand what's going on? And like, yeah, we're talking about a lot of the emotional work today. Well, circling back to what you said about the holidays, it's making that decision with each person you meet, which is exhausting in itself. Like, okay, do I really want to sit down and be like, no, actually, I'm doing terribly today. Mm-hmm. And I've been having a bad last few weeks or saying like, oh, no, I'm fine. Yeah. How are you go doing? Like, yeah. it's picking your battle with each person. Yeah. And some some people, because I just asked about this on Twitter, so I got a lot, a lot of different answers. But some people had also said, like, one, I'll judge whether or not this is just like a pleasantry or the person actually wants to know, which is fair. That's an easy one. And they're like, now, if I think that it's someone who genuinely wants to know and I genuinely want to tell about it, I'll basically be like, let's pick another time to talk about this. Like, let's get coffee. Mm -hmm. Let's have a phone call. Like, not right now at this holiday party. (laughs) Like, it's not a conversation for this. We can't have it properly. And we're both going to be dissatisfied at the end. So, again, like deflecting. Because there are some family members where I'll go into all the detail, like my grandmother, mm-hmm. like I will, so we'll sit down and I'll work through her, like what exactly everything means. And then there's other family members where I'm like, we don't need to. No. Nope. You know the gist. Yeah. Yeah. And like, even when you have new information, it's usually like things haven't changed that much. The only thing that I really need some people to understand is that it's not gone because I'm not talking about it. That's the part that matters. Exactly. Well, it's that idea of like invisible disabilities mm-hmm. where I I am so excited to have my new disabled parking pass, but I also am experiencing really, really deep anxiety because I, even with a cane, I've had people make comments because of my age. Mm-hmm. Where, like, why do you even have cane? Well, you're just faking it. Like random people at Walmart will yeah. like, share these experiences with me. Yeah. So many people think that they're the disability police and it's so confusing. Why? Like I, 
I don't get it either. Yeah. Like, the only person that I could, like, conceptually understand having any right to do that is if there is not enough disability, like, parking, accessible parking, and you really need it, and you're, like, pissed about it, and you're like, that person doesn't need this parking as much as I do. And I'm not condoning that. I'm just saying that I think that it's more valid than most people who are the disability police. The funny thing is, is I've never, at least so far, I've never been stopped with someone who either has a, a very visible or an invisible disability that will say, like, you shouldn't be using that bathroom or you shouldn't be doing this. It's always someone who will openly state they don't have a disability <laughs> that are always the angriest. Yeah. Which makes less sense to me. Yeah. You're like, where is this coming from and why? But yeah. that's also like a bigger societal problem, basically. Yeah. And a representation problem. Okay. We've been all over. Um, and I did ask you already if there's anything else. Is there anything else that we missed that you've been thinking about? No. no. Um, that pretty much sums it up where I have gone through a like, whole menagerie of things. I have answers for some of them. Yeah. I might never have answers for some others. And I just keep going. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. That's a good summary. <laughs> yep. Thank you for taking the time and the energy to talk to me. I really appreciate it. I know that these are a lot of energy to like dig into everything. And I really appreciate you kind of having a collective of all these stories together. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really grateful for the chance to talk to so many people. It's made a huge difference in even my own experience of my health and my medical care, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Thank you for listening to episode 66 of No End in Sight. You can find Brienne on Instagram and Twitter at at B, and you can find this show on Instagram at no.end.in.sight.pod. Don't forget, you can sign up and support this show over at patreon.com slash noendinsight. Or if you want to support this show but don't have a few bucks to spare, she'd be just as grateful if you left a podcast review on Apple Podcasts slash iTunes. As usual, don't forget that Brienne has a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. Also, her cross-stitch pattern store, Digital Artisanal, is back online. She's giving away unlimited free patterns right now with the coupon code NEIS. Thanks for listening. You nailed it. I know.